This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. A landmark deal between two of Canada's biggest telecoms is now one step closer to becoming a reality. After nearly two years of negotiations, the Canadian Competition Tribunal has rejected a challenge to Rogers' $26 billion takeover of Shaw Communications. The Rogers-Shaw merger heads for what may be its final legal showdown this week as the Federal Court of Appeal conducts its hearing on the Competition Bureau's appeal of a recent decision from the Competition Tribunal that rejected its opposition to the proposed merger. If that sounds complicated, consider that the same transaction has already faced a review at the CRTC, awaits a Spectrum license transfer approval from the ICED minister, and has faced widespread concern from consumers and competitors from across the country. In other words, this deal may have been proposed nearly two years ago, but many still have serious doubts about it. Jennifer Quaid is an associate professor and vice dean research in the civil law section at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. She's an expert on competition law and has been vocal throughout the Roger Shaw merger drama. She joins me on the podcast to unpack the legal arguments in the case, provides her prognostication on a potential outcome at the Court of Appeal, and offers insights into potential future competition law reforms in Canada in light of a national consultation on the issue. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me, Michael. Yeah, no, I'm really pleased you you come on. The the timing is perfect this week. uh, The Federal Court of Appeal is going to hear the um, here are the case involving the Roger Shaw merger, which has been a hot button issue in Canada, of course, for many, many months. Uh, and we now seem to be at least on the precipice of potentially a conclusion with these legal processes moving ahead. I have to say really at unprecedented speed, you know, there's a lot to discuss, but why don't we start with a bit of a 101 in terms of this merger with a couple of key backgrounders. I want to get into a little bit what this, what the, what this looks like right now in terms of the deal, but even more, some of the regulatory process issues just as a start. I've had a number of podcast episodes that have focused on some of these issues with discussions around the prior CRTC approval on the broadcast side, and everyone, of course, still waiting for the ICED minister for a final decision on the transfer of spectrum licenses. But we're talking today specifically on the competition side. So can you describe a bit how the Competition Bureau finds itself involved in this case? That's a really uh, great way to set things up. I think that it's important for uh, the audience to realize that when it comes to competition, there are these are rules that pretty much apply across the board, but that there is an acknowledgement expressly in the act that certain sectors, and there are basically three of them, uh, one is banks or financial institutions, one is telecom and one is transport, where there are other regulatory processes that have something to say about transactions in that space. And those are separate and apart from the competition process. So the competition process, when it relates to mergers, can can involve the Bureau in two ways. And I think what I'll do is I'll start with the sort of the the way that that it uh, applies to Roger Shaw, and then I can just make some little tweaks in, in the discussion so people understand that there's some things that can happen slightly differently. Um, Roger Shaw is a big transaction, 
and it is large enough in size and the parties involved in this transaction are large enough by the measures that are used in the Competition Act. I won't bother, I won't bore everyone with the details. Those things are, you know, basically their financial thresholds and, and uh, the transaction side is updated every year uh, to sort of reflect cost of cost of things. But what that means is if you have transactions over a certain size involving parties of a certain size, you must pre-notify the Bureau of your intention to uh, complete this transaction. And that requires that you fill out a form uh, with that requires a certain amount of information. And then this is submitted to the Bureau. The Bureau looks at it. In many, many, many cases, the Bureau will conclude that the transaction as contemplated does not appear to raise any anti-competitive effects uh, that are significant enough. And the standard in Canada is, you know, substantial lessening or substantial prevention of competition. I can get into that uh, later. But the, the Bureau is looking to see whether this transaction prima facie raises some concerns that they would want to explore further. Uh, any company that is serious about its transaction, especially of its of a certain size, will have likely engaged legal counsel to advise them on the process, and they will be prepared for what they anticipate will be the commissioner's reaction. And usually a transaction that might plausibly raise some anti-competitive issues, those parties are going to be prepared with some possible suggestions for how to deal with those concerns. And why do they do that? Because it's possible in the pre-notification process, and this happens a lot, that there's a back and forth between the Bureau and the Council for the parties. And most of the time, uh, there is a kind of agreed solution that if there are changes required to the deal, the parties will sort of voluntarily offer to change it. And when they get to the end of that process, the the, uh, the Bureau will say, look, you know, what you've done seems to respond to the concerns we might have had. So we're happy to let you go ahead with the deal. The nuance here is to say that the pre-notification process allows the commissioner the opportunity to see whether there are anti-competitive problems, but it is not an approval. Basically, what they say is either we didn't see any problems or the problems we raised with you, we were able to come to some sort of understanding or arrangement or tweaks to the deal so that those concerns have been adequately addressed. And so you can go ahead. But it isn't the same as saying, you know, we now put our stamp of approval that this is this is fine and good to go. We have a sort of non-interventionist approach when it comes to merger review. So that's, you know, what happens with big transactions. When uh, it happens in the minority of cases where the back and forth between the commissioner and the parties can't seem to come to some sort of resolution, there are sort of a couple of permutations that can happen, but typically the Bureau will signal its intention if it's really got some concerns and it doesn't seem to have enough information. It might ask for a supplemental information request. This is a signal that the markets will understand. It's the equivalent in the United States of what's called a second request. And that's, that's sending a very strong message that the competition authorities are probably have some problems and that it might take a lot of effort to reach some sort of agreement, or maybe this is a signal that there's going to be a challenge to the merger. Um, then what happens is the commissioner, if really they can't get to an informal resolution through this back and forth, they may decide that this is a case that's worth bringing to the tribunal. 
And I think what's important here is that a case that goes to the tribunal is framed in the following way. Section 92 of the Competition Act is structured in the following way. The commissioner comes to the tribunal and says, I think there's a competition problem with this merger. And in order to address it, you need to make the following order. This means that it's incumbent on the commissioner when they challenge a merger to say, there's a, pro there's a problem, either lessening or prevention of competition. It's big enough, so it's substantial. And there's something the tribunal can do about it. That is to say, there's an order that can be made that can address the problem. And this is important because ultimately that's what the tribunal will rule on. They will decide, should we or should we not issue an order? But there are, of course, three steps in the analysis, which uh, many people I think now are familiar with. The first step is the commissioner has to say, there's a competitive problem. The commissioner bears the burden of proof and says, here's the competitive problem. Here's my evidence to show why it's substantial and why it's related to the merger. And we can get into the details of that if you want. Once the commissioner's done that, then there's a question of whether or not there are countervailing efficiencies. The structure of the efficiencies defense says the language is outweigh and offset. Through uh, legal interpretations uh, developed in the propane case back in 2001-2, the meaning of outweigh is essentially saying a quantitative comparison of the anti-competitive effects versus the quantification of efficiency gains, whether they're synergies or, you know, cost savings, dynamic uh, savings, you know, rationalization of research operations, whatever it might be. Um, and then there's, and then there's the offset part, which is a kind of a qualitative side. This qualitative side of the analysis is very anemic following the decision in Turvita, which was a 2015 case uh, issued by the Supreme Court of Canada, can get into the details of that. But anyway, once they get past the efficiencies phase, if there is still a competitive problem, so let's say there are efficiencies, but they're not enough to bring us down from substantial to something below that, then the question that the tribunal has to ask itself is, how do we deal with that? How do we respond to it? And there is obviously the ultimate option of saying the transaction shouldn't go through in its current form. They might also make another kind of order that either you know, says that parties have to do or not do something. They can also, um, and that's typically on the request of the parties, they could order divestitures and so on. There's been some debate about whether or not the tribunal actually has the power to order divestitures. We can get into that later. But the practical matter that it is, is that up to now, um, in the very few contested merger cases they've been, the, uh, the tribunal has only ordered divestitures. There's never been a full block to a deal. So the, the result of the tribunal ruling is to either say there's a competitive problem, we need to do something about it, or there's no competitive problem, but it's not actually an approval. One thing I will add, um, and then I'll end my answer there, is that it's possible for the commissioner to challenge mergers that are not big enough to be pre-notifiable. That is to say, they're smaller deals, they involve smarter, smaller parties. This was the case of Tervita, actually. And they can challenge those before uh, the tribunal as well. You don't have to have a pre-notified deal. But the reality is that, th that we don't have a bureau that spends its time trolling, you know, everywhere to find out what deals are being done. So the pre-notification process is a very important part of merger, re merger review because that's how the bureau finds out how most transactions are happening that, that are consequential.
Okay. That's a, that's a fabulous introduction to competition law and what that process looks like uh, in Canada. Your students are really lucky. And uh, so are we for, for that explanation, which is great. I want to sort of take that and sort of drill it down, obviously, down to the Roger Shaw case. But uh, before we do that, one other element, if you can just describe a little bit how this deal has evolved, because, of course, it becomes relevant in terms of what's actually being reviewed. It started off, as many will know, uh, as Rogers and Shaw and has evolved a little bit over time. Uh, where are we at right now? What did the Bureau and the Tribunal look at? Okay. This is actually a, a very interesting question that has not ever been raised quite this way. Uh, when we get to the uh, the reasons for the appeal, that will be at the end. I'll, I'll um, it'll be it'll be plain to you, to the listeners why it's so uh, so interesting. So in this case, yes, the beginning is Rogers and Shaw want to combine, and essentially it's Rogers that's going to absorb Shaw. And uh, for the longest time, so they pre-notify this deal to the commissioner and they are made aware of it. But fairly early on in the process, it uh, the, the signals coming out are that the Bureau is has some concerns uh, about it. And the vibe we're getting from Rogers and Shaw, these are very impressionistic, of course, because I wasn't in the boardroom, nor was I in the Bureau's offices, uh, that Rogers and Shaw is pretty defensive and pretty strident in saying, this is the deal we want to do. We don't want to change it. And that goes on for quite a long time. The deal's announced in the spring of 2021, in March, I believe. And and some people will remember, this is a sidebar, but I think it's important just to understand the timeline. In the fall of 2021, Rogers gets embroiled in a corporate governance uh, kind of standoff uh, involving uh, different factions uh, within its uh, within its board and and different factions of shareholders supporting different uh, people on the board and ultimately you know culminates in a in a standoff over who should be who should be the CEO of the company. Leave that aside, but just to say that that they had a bunch of things going on. Um, by the time we get to early 2022, uh, it's it's no longer a guessing game. It's it's clear that the commissioner has concerns and is is articulating those. And I mean, it's not entirely surprising to the extent that Canada already has a fairly concentrated uh, telecommunications industry. And I use that expression telecommunications quite broadly uh, it, from a competition perspective. Actually, this is one of the one of the challenges in uh, understanding the impact of the Roger Shaw merger, because we talk about telecommunications and really we're bundling in a bunch of things there. There's wireline, there's wireless, there's these, these players are also in cable. And so, you know, what exactly are we talking about and what lines of business are we talking about is something that, that does become an issue uh, when we get to the, uh, to the tribunal. In, as we move through the winter of 2022, it becomes clear that Rogers and Shaw, uh, despite their bluster and their very strong stance, are realizing that the commissioner is actually pretty serious about challenging this merger. And I, I think this is where, you know, we can read things in the media, but there was probably a lot of back and forth going on communications between counsel for Rogers and, and the Bureau that we are not privy to, but I'm sure there was a lot of back and forth. But at one point, parties will realize that the commissioner is 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 starting to gird up and prepare for an actual challenge under Section 92 of the Competition Act. This doesn't happen very often. I think from memory, there've been about six contested cases. So this is not the usual thing that happens. And, and so it's a big deal if that's what's happening. So I think Rogers and Shaw realized 
the commissioner is serious. They're going to they're going to push us. And then they start proposing some alternative ways of addressing the deal and it's pretty clear early on that the freedom mobile piece of the puzzle is a is kind of like a, a core problem um, in part because of course freedom was originally <laughs> up, uh, supposed to be a separate competitor and that didn't work out and and there have been many attempts to create a viable sustainable fourth competitor in especially in wireless that just have not been successful so they propose some uh, ways of spinning off freedom that would involve private equity. The commissioner is lukewarm to cold on this idea, in part because they don't think it's a sustainable remedy. We all, for those who know how private equity works, uh, they are generally interested in taking on a business, uh, streamlining it, getting taking some costs, but they want a rate of return within five to seven years. And so they're not going to hang on to it. And from the perspective of creating a, a viable competitor, this just wasn't on. So the commissioner says, well, no, that's not good enough. All this time in the background, Videotron has been saying, hey, we'd actually be interested. We might buy it. And there is at the same time a lot of chatter that says Videotron is having an impact in the Quebec market. They are a fourth player in the market, and that does condition prices and bring them further down. There's a kind of Quebec discount, if you want to talk about that. And that that's an interesting uh, idea to, to, to introduce into the mix. But up until the spring of 2022, Rogers and Shaw are at least say publicly they're not interested. The commissioner then uh, at this point bears down in May, says, right, we're, here we go. They're filing their Section 92 application. That's their challenge to the deal. Why it's anti-competitive. And they challenge it based on the deal on the table, which is Rogers buying Shaw, period. What happens in the intervening period uh, from the time the commissioner's uh, application is is uh, filed to, let's say, you know, when we when we have an announcement is that uh, there's obviously some talks with Videoton going on. I think that I will never know, certainly as someone on the outside, and, and most of us will never know what exactly was said, what degree of certainty was there that this transaction would actually go forward, how much did the Bureau know, how much did the parties share. I, I don't know the answers to those questions. But early May is the Section 92 application. By about mid-June, we have the announcement of a deal and filing of a fairly you know, substantial number of documents, something like 1,200 or 1,600 documents. Um, and Rogers and Shaw say, see, okay, new deal. Let's, uh, you know, this is the deal. And when they file their, their response, they file it on the basis of saying, well, the original deal doesn't exist anymore. The only deal that exists is this deal that would be done in two steps. First, we divest freedom. Then Rogers buys the remainder of Shaw. The commissioner fights against this and continues to say, no, this is not, that that's not the case. And we haven't consented to this being an adequate remedy. And no, we're not going to, we're not going to argue the case on that basis. By August, the deal is actually papered. So for those of you who are corporate lawyers, you know, this, the actual deal terms and then, and uh, the detail of the transaction. But by August, there's already been the schedule agreed for how the how the transaction is going to go and uh or sorry the process will go and one of the features of rogers and shaw that is new that maybe some people don't know is that in 2019 the tribunal who has long been criticized as a very slow ponderous heavy administrative tribunal um 
a somewhat of an oxymoron, you know, an expert tribunal that's extremely slow. They, um, they created under their rules an expedited process. So these are rules. This is, these are, this is not legislation, um, but it was designed to try and accelerate the process it requires the consent of both parties, and in this case, both Roger Shaw and the commissioner consented to the accelerated process. But the final deal uh, between Videoton and Freedom isn't really put on the table until the schedule for the hearing has already happened. So you can imagine that this has some impacts on trial preparation and on you know the strategies of the parties. And I don't, I don't think I need to tell anyone who knows something about litigation that, you know, you don't prepare litigation the day before you file your application, nor do you prepare it the day before you, the hearing. This is, you know, a months long preparation process. What I don't know, and what no one on the outside will know is how much of an impact on the commissioner's preparation did the, did the change in the deal and did the change in, in, you know, what was being argued really impact on their case. I don't know. Uh, I think that one thing people should bear in mind is that although the commissioner is a state agency and the bureau does obviously have the benefit of state resources, they're not infinite and they're quite a bit smaller than comparable or than our, you know, uh, peers in the United States and, and elsewhere so that they don't have the same capacity and resources to suddenly say, yeah, we need to double our team and ramp up how much uh, faster we're doing things. The bureau challenges the challenges the merger in their mind, at least the starting point is they're focused on the initial merger. Uh, Roger Shaw saying, no, it now involves Videotron. It goes to the tribunal. Um, what does the tribunal have to say once they've had a chance to take a look at the evidence? Which merger are they looking at? Uh, how do they address the concerns that are raised by the Competition Bureau? Well, the tribunal sides uh, pretty much without any hesitation with the parties that the deal that is on the table is the deal as modified by the divestiture to Videotron. And the reasoning that's used by the tribunal on this point, to my mind, is uh, it's a stretch. That's not to say that one could not have a discussion about whether or not the act should contemplate a circumstance where there's a modification to the deal and contemplate you know, what makes sense. The reasoning, the legal reasoning behind it rests on a, a pretty thin set of, of uh, sources. There is an interpretation based on the grammatical wording of the, of the statute, the fact that we use the future tense and not the conditional tense, which to the minds of the tribunal means that we must be talking about an actual deal on the table and not something hypothetical. Uh, and and to their mind, you know, the, the previous deal that had been proposed just didn't exist because Rogers and Shaw had said that it wouldn't. And I guess they, the tribunal found that convincing as a matter of fact. The other thing that reinforces the tribunal's view is they, they look at um, discussions that are occurring outside of the tribunal's um, you know, direct hearing, and they talk about the fact that there are commercial constraints on Rogers and Shaw to follow through with the deal as it is structured, and that in some ways that backstops, you know, worry that they might flip-flop or change their minds. Uh, they're not legally enforceable, though, of course. These are just, you know, commercial constraints on Rogers and Shaw to deliver the deal and and the pressure from investors to say, well, you got to get it done. Um, the other point that the tribunal relies on is the expression by the ICID minister in October of the fact that he would not authorize a spectrum transfer 
a spectrum license transfer from Shaw to Rogers, and but that he would entertain the a possibility of a transfer from Videotron, uh, sorry, from Rogers to Videotron. And the importance of that is that the, the minister also articulates two conditions that he would expect to be uh, part of that, and which Videotron at the time readily said, oh, of course we would do that, which is one, that they would not uh, sell freedom or the assets of freedom before, uh, you know, at least for a period of 10 years. And that they, the second is that they would maintain the pricing that they actually have in Quebec right now. Um, the tribunal recognizes that, especially the second condition, is not legally enforceable in any way. And in fact, I think as a factual matter, it'll be very, very difficult to determine what that Quebec discount is once <laughs> Videotron is operating in other markets. It's not clear that we're going to see that differential as obviously, and nor is it possible to really say that prices have to remain the same because we all know that prices evolve over time as a function of many factors. But the tribunal takes comfort from those things. Uh, the other thing is they cite a U.S. case that's 18 years old uh, on, an, on an injunction where the FTC tried to argue that you needed to look at a deal without the divestiture before uh, you know, coming to a conclusion and, and that on an injunction sort of decision, the, the court didn't say, uh, didn't agree with them. I'm not sure how persuasive that is, honestly. And the other basis is for their reasoning were had to do with uh, extrapolating from the two Supreme, two Supreme Court cases. And I think those extrapolations don't really, they're not really convincing. I, I, I don't think that they actually, the, the, the words in those judgments really speak to the point about whether or not we should be entertaining the possibility of the parties being able to unilaterally change the deal subsequent to the commencement of litigation. Okay. So you don't sound all that convinced, but we'll, we'll get into what's likely to happen in the Federal Court of Appeal in just a moment. I, I wanted to pause for, for just a sec, though, and not to sound too conspiratorial, but uh, there are, the timing behind a lot of what's taken place certainly just doesn't feel coincidental. You know, you mentioned the minister's announcement on the initial proposal and his signaling of around the prospect of adding Videotron, which from a timing perspective, I believe occurred just prior to mediation between uh, the bureau and the parties wrapping up. Tribunal wraps up its decision in just as, as the sort of rocket docket, because Rogers says, you know, we, here's why we need this quickly. And so they deliver in a way that we just never see. And now we've got a federal court of appeal hearing that's going to take place within weeks of that decision, which also seems uh, a pretty rare thing. That that leaves a sense almost of, of the whole thing feeling a bit preordained with Rogers pushing its own its own deadlines. Uh, you know, you have any thoughts on on some of the timing about just how fast all this seems to have moved at the urging of the parties as opposed to sort of the public interest or the the insistence of the the bureau and the like? The timing is definitely something that um, does preoccupy me. I but not perhaps not in the way that that some have been commenting. It, we have to bear in mind that the expedited process exists and the commissioner consented to it. So, you know, there both parties had their reasons for wanting this to produce to to proceed with as much speed as possible. And I don't think that there's necessarily a problem with that. My 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 concern is is uh, is deeper on that speed thing. And then I'll come to the you know occurrence of things in the background, like the minister, in a second. My problem with the speed thing is that the process itself that the tribunal uses and the amount of evidence they require and the sort of ponderous nature of the inquiry that they go into 
doesn't lend itself to speed. So speeding the process up basically increases the costs because you need more people to do things faster. And at one point, there are limits to how fast you can do things or how many resources you can throw at things. So people are a little shocked at the bill of costs that have been submitted. I'm not actually that surprised, to be honest. But I do think that the cost of speeding things up uh, should not be neglected or ignored. But I don't think it has to do particularly with with either party being inefficient or, you know, letting the meter run unreasonably. I mean, I could be proven wrong factually, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's that when you try to do the kind of really heavy in-depth analysis that the tribunal normally requires, even with the narrowing of issues, even with, you know, the tribunal pushing the parties to, to, you know, really try to find common ground as much as possible, it's 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 hard. It's really hard to do that fast. I think we have to rethink why it is that we need this evidence and why it is that we need such a heavy process when we're really talking about economics for the most part. And this is not an exact science. I think that there's there's a bit of a, a misapprehension that you can somehow get to the truth of things, that these things are provable and they're provable with certainty. And I, and I have a lot of problems with the way expectations have been set with regard to how you prove that there's a competitive problem and, you know, what's required to do that. But I'll park that for a second. I do agree with you that there there are some curious timing issues going on here. And I still myself do not know why the minister felt it was necessary to speak in the middle of a proceeding that's ongoing about a potential remedy on the table. I, I did not understand why that was done. I mean, I say that sort of naively. Of course, there is a less naive interpretation one could give to that. But that, that to me struck me as odd and, and strange that that would be done. Uh, and, you know, I have no, no window into, the, uh, into the, uh, the minister's thinking in that regard, especially as it came just after these negotiation sessions, which didn't lead anywhere. And I think it wasn't very surprising given the positions of the parties here, uh, because it didn't seem like either side wanted to compromise. And I don't know that I can judge, you know, whether that was reasonable or unreasonable without having been present in those uh, conversations. What I find interesting now, though, is that the press release issued by the minister following the notice of appeal seems to take a step back and seems to say, I want to see what happens. As though there is, there, we're creating some space maybe for uh, a slightly different message to come out. I mean, at the end of the day, the minister's decision, as I understand it, is discretionary. And this truly is, would be a, pol- a political decision. You know, what do, as, as a policy matter, what, what does this government want to do with this transaction? And that's distinct from the tribunal process, which, which has to you know, conform to the requirements of, of judicial proceedings, or at least, you know, quasi-judicial proceedings, and, and can't be a politically motivated decision. Okay, fair enough. Speaking of that political decision, um, it will no doubt be influenced by the outcome of this appeal. Indeed, the minister said they're going to wait for this, for the, the the legal proceedings to wrap up before announcing anything final on on his end. So, what do we've got? We've got the hearing scheduled for um, this week when this when this podcast drops. What do you expect from the appeal? Um, what you know? What what do you think? What are the core arguments that the bureau is making? And do you have a a best guess as how you think uh, the the federal court may, federal court of appeal may rule? 
yeah, you know, we've all been wrong so far. <laughs> so maybe, I mean, that is to say, uh, uh, not necessarily on the outcome of the case, like whether the tribunal would grant an order or not, but rather just on what would be the what would be the key issues. We all thought this was going to be a debate about the efficiencies defense because we thought that that was going to be really worth where things were going to get feisty, and they were at the hearing. But at the end of the day, because of the conclusions of the tribunal, you know that question was moot. The question that is live on appeal uh, has to do with whether or not the tribunal made an error by saying, oh, we can just look at this other transaction uh, rather than the original one that the commissioner challenged. And that's why I think the legal basis for the arguments of the of the tribunal are important. It's not a very compelling basis. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were that they're that it's unreasonable for them to take that position. Uh, I want to be careful to hear what I say. Uh, it's it's rather that this is by by no means a slam dunk. Oh, this is an obvious you know conclusion that one would arrive at. This is a new question, and it doesn't get a lot of you know as far as I'm concerned substantive discussion in the judgment. I was looking for you know what they were going to say on this point, and I'm I don't find it particularly. Uh, overwhelming. Maybe the Federal Court of Appeal will agree and might add some things to it. But I, I actually wonder, because the way the tribunal decision goes, you would essentially say, yep, every time the parties change their deal, it's possible that we could force the commissioner to respond to that deal, or, you know, that's the deal that's in play. And I think that if that's the direction we think as a policy matter is important, I think it would be up to Parliament to decide, you know, well, what what are the parameters of being able to change? I, I don't know that I would just like this judicial rule to sit here like that. But I think there's a chance, this is my read, that the Court of Appeal might, in fact, conclude there's an error and might articulate an opinion to say, actually, you know, here here's why we think it's an error and here's why we th- we think that going forward, we you cannot just say, oh, yeah, anytime you can change a deal, that's a correct interpretation of Section 92. But I think factually, given the record and given the way the tribunal concluded on the facts, I don't think that the, the conclusion that there was an error on the order in which they did the analysis is going to affect the outcome on Roger Shaw. And that's because basically the tribunal says we don't find any of the commissioner's evidence convincing. And findings of fact are not in play uh, unless they're patently unreasonable or really reach some level of, of, uh, of you know, unreliability that you could challenge them. So I think the problem is going to be that for the commissioner, they may win on the legal argument and they may win for the future, which I think is important, but I don't think it's going to change the outcome for Roger Shaw uh, because even if it gets sent back down, given the, the tribunal's attitude about the evidence, the commissioner hasn't convinced them. And and I just don't see how that, how they're going to get around that. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think you're alone in that projection. I think many have suggested that the commissioner may may win an important legal ruling that there was an error in terms of what deal they were looking at, but um, as you suggest, the, the the findings that come from the tribunal on the facts themselves are going to be difficult to displace. You you mentioned the the role that the government or the parliament ought to play in some of these interpretations, and I think that provides us with a with a good place to wrap up, and that is that the the government is open to reform of competition law. There's a consultation that is ongoing right now. And there is, I think, been in, in recent months, no shortage of frustration with the state of Canadian competition law in the sense that uh, there are 
very few challenges. They are rarely successful. Um, that's not to say that uh, we have to have more successful challenges, but um, we certainly need competition laws that uh, that ensure that we've got a competitive marketplace. And Canada has a play. Uh, Canadian rules have left many, I think, frustrated as, as to where they stand. You've talked about the need to think boldly about reform. What are some of the kinds of things that you would like to to see happen coming out of this consultation? I think it's a an opportunity for Canada to think about how competition fits into a larger framework. And I, I put that at two levels. Competition policy is part of economic policy. And I think economic policy has to be oriented towards, you know, the welfare of Canadians and, and the better outcomes for Canadians. And in that regard, I think that one of the things that competition policy has traditionally been extremely allergic to doing uh, in its conception right now, and that you can trace that right back to the origins of competition law as we have it today in Canada, the 1969 uh, interim report on competition policy by the Economic Council of Canada, and then the the actual, um, you know, enactment in 1986 of the of the act as it is now, where it got transformed from a criminal statute into this, you know, Partial, partially criminal, partially civil, but mostly civil statute, is uh, that we don't, we just want to think about overall effects for the economy and the idea that, you know, a high tide, all boats rise. And, you know, uh, as long as the pie is bigger, then, then we're, you know, then we can say that we're better off. And we don't really ask questions about how the pie is carried, how the pie is carved up who gets the pieces of the pie and and whether or not there are differential effects. So we don't, competition policy has traditionally been viewed very much in a classical economic lens. I do think that some of the challenges we face today and some of the big questions that this government has said that they're interested in addressing, whether it's the climate, the climate uh, emergency or the climate challenge, whether it's in reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, whether it's the question of, of you know, inclusion generally and an inclusive economy, I think you have to have a competition policy that is conversant with those values and can't be working at cross purposes, which doesn't mean you're going to try to, you know, change the green revolution through uh, through competition law. But I think you have to have a competition law that isn't undermining your objectives elsewhere. So the idea that you have a left hand, right hand, it's aware of what's going on and that competition policy can't be so hermetically sealed and neat and tidy, which makes it predictable and very uh, loved by by uh, business stakeholders, but not necessarily always working uh, in the interests of Canadians. The second thing I would say about um, the competition reform in general is that traditionally there have been certain stakeholders who comment on competition policy. They tend to be very expert. They tend to come from certain fields like law and economics and finance. And I think it's time for us to hear other voices, even if they may frame things differently and they may look at things differently. Uh, I, I do think it's time for us to, to reevaluate what, what do we have competition for? The, the, the purpose clause of the act says, you know, there are four big objectives we hope from competition. But, you know, competition in and of itself is meaningless. It's, it's that we, we believe that competition generates outcomes. And those outcomes are, you know, lower prices and better choice for consumers, economic efficiency, to some degree participation of a wide range of businesses by size and, you know, business model, if you will, the sort of small and medium-sized enterprise argument, and, you know, uh, the, the place of Canada as, a, as an exporting uh, country. Those are sort of the, the four big objectives. But some people have asked some questions. Well, why don't we care about workers in that? Why don't we care about other things in that? It's not for me to say what the 
what the values should be, but I do think the process needs to be, is an opportunity to think about that and to say, where's the direction of competition going? I certainly have also, I think we need to think boldly about how we do some of the things in the act. It hasn't been looked at for 12 years, but I think there's also just a general rethink. The the merger provisions, they've been you know, slightly modified, but basically the core structure has been there since 86. Is it time to rethink that? Is it time to rethink the fact that we have a separate efficiencies defense? Maybe we should just fold it into the whole analysis. Do we need to rethink, you know, the, the, the types of things we take into account when we look at mergers? And I suppose the other thing that I think is important, I mean, there are other questions of competition law, but I won't talk about those now because we're mostly focused on mergers. I think the other sort of big question that I have, and maybe not as many people talk about this as a bit of an inside baseball thing, is the tribunal. I think the tribunal structurally has never worked the way it was intended to work. It is this bizarre unicorn that is an expert tribunal with a full right of appeal on mixed questions of law and fact and questions of law. Why did we do that? <laughs> and so I think the, the tribunal and the decision-making process uh, should be looked at as well. I think it's telling that in those circumstances where people have a choice to go to the tribunal or the regular courts, they go to the regular courts. And that's not saying anything against the tribunal or the people who work there or the people who sit on it. I mean, they're all working very hard and doing their best. I just think that we have set up a structure that is not delivering the kind of decision-making body that is going to be helpful for us. And, uh, and I, think it, I think it's time to take a look at that. All right. Well, certainly Roger Shaw has provided, I think, an impetus for a lot of people to start paying attention to competition law. And you've done a great job of highlighting both some of the issues and the need for more voices. You know, it's been striking the backlash that the Bureau has gotten from some in the business press in particular who have said, hey, just get on with it. Uh, those may be some of those typical voices who are pretty comfortable with the system and comfortable with moving ahead in the way things have always been. But as you suggest, there may be a lot of Canadians who uh, aren't competition law experts, but are feeling the impact of what our competitive state is like, and hopefully we'll have something to say as this moves forward. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for unpacking both the Roger Shaw case and, and placing these issues in a broader context and for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. It was a real pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.